0: as we continue our series in this wonderful book we'll be looking at the church in Smyrna as you turn there let me ask you what scares you the most what are some things you're afraid of now probably immediately things like zombies and clowns and the being alone in the dark come to mind but i don't mean those things i mean the, the real things the substantial things, the life-defining things that scare you. Chapman University actually did a survey among Americans to find out the sorts of things that uh, Americans are scared of, and they came up with a very extensive list. On that list were things like terrorist attacks, poverty, death, sickness, theft, and and the government. Those were among some of the top things that scared people, but there's a A a fear, I think, behind these fears, woven through these fears, um, that perhaps is the greatest one, that didn't make the number one, but I think it is the number one, really. It's the fear of harm and death. I think the fear of harm and death is something that is real for us. Uh, It's a basic fear, I think, we all encounter. At times, it's an overwhelming fear. We can have an overwhelming fear of harm and death. Maybe when you watched the the video on what's going on in Egypt, you were thinking, wow, what would I do if I lived in Egypt? Or if that happened here, I don't know if I could handle that. What would it be like to live in real fear of harm and death all the time? Well, our passage this morning is about this. It addresses the, the fear of suffering, the fear of harm, and the fear of death. And actually, you're going to see in this passage, Jesus is predicting suffering and death for the church in Smyrna. He tells them ahead of time. And he also, as he tells them that, doesn't merely inform them of that reality, but tells them about himself. What we'll learn as we look at the passage is that there is one who is greater than death. There is one who is greater than our sufferings. And we are called to look to Him, to trust in Him, to put our hope in Him, and to find in Him the ability to overcome these fears that may define us. So let's pray and look at God's Word and ask Him to change us in regards to these truths. Lord, we thank You for Your Word, and we thank You for this passage. We thank You for this church in Smyrna and what You did uh, in them and through them. Lord, for the lessons we learn as we look at your word. Thank you, Lord, that your word is living and active. And for today, not just for the church in Smyrna, but for today and for us, Kingdom Grace Church, that you have intentions through your word to speak to us. So speak, O Lord, your servants, listen. Use me to to teach and proclaim your word. And Lord, speak and change us and equip us and empower us and lead us in your righteous ways, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. And so it says in Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 8, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan, The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. God's word from Revelation chapter 2. This section of this letter, of this book, uh, is written to the church in Smyrna. And uh, this is actually very similar to the church in Philadelphia. You'll see later on among the seven churches addressed. And just remember that there, there were seven churches that really are representative of all churches throughout history, throughout the the globe, that they're chosen to really represent all churches. There were more churches in that part of Asia. There could have been nine or more uh, churches that, if you wanted to address the whole region, but there were seven chosen uh, to address them particularly because of their their particular situation, but also to address the whole church through them. And so this letter written to the church in Smyrna is a parallel to the church, uh, uh, the letter to the church in Philadelphia, the words to the church in Philadelphia. This is the second church in the series. Philadelphia is the second to last in the series. And so you can probably see that, that there's a symmetry here. There's a symmetry in these letters. There's seven of them. And the first and the last are churches that were in grave danger uh, because of, of wh- what they were doing. We learned about the Ephesian church and uh, last week. Laodicean church is at the end. Then the second church and second to last are very similar, Smyrna and Philadelphia. They're both small churches in the eyes of the world but greatly esteemed by God. Both these churches were commended without being critiqued. All the other churches among the seven were critiqued for something. These two were not. Uh, they were small churches, though. They were, they were weak in the eyes of the world, but they were greatly esteemed by God. So the, the symmetry goes like that. There's the outer churches then the next inner. and Then the middle, middle three churches are kind of similar. They are, they are churches that have a mixed bag of things. There's things to be commended. There are also some, there is some serious error doctrinal error that they're getting into. So, Smyrna uh, is addressed, and it's a small church, disregarded, despised by their culture. They look small and weak and pathetic, perhaps. But they are faithful, and they're full of life, and they're esteemed by God himself. And even so, they face some very serious, life-threatening persecution. This isn't because God doesn't love them. He does. He esteems this church. But in his plans, he's using trial, as as we learn about elsewhere in Scripture, and persecution to work something great and glorious, something better that will not compare to anything else, this final product. But in this, he calls them to put all their trust in Christ. And that's really the lesson here, that we're called to put all of our trust in Christ who leads us through life and death. So let's dig in and learn about that. First, Jesus is fully victorious over life and death. We are to trust him because Jesus is fully victorious over life and death. He introduces himself here to this Smyrna church using descriptions that he gave earlier, that were given earlier of him, he gave of himself. He does that strategically throughout these seven churches. He describes himself, he reintroduces an aspect of who he is, a, a phrase, a description that he's used earlier to speak to their particular need strengthen them in their particular need. So this church in Smyrna is facing persecution, suffering, and death. And so Jesus describes himself in such a way that they would put their confidence in him. So he says to them, these are the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. He is the, the first and the last. He's, he's at the very beginning of all things, the beginning of all time. He, he, through him all things were created. He's there in the beginning before anything happened. Way before the Smyrns were around, he was God. He's alive. And he's the last as well. He'll be there at the end as well. And of course, the implication is he's there in between. He, he spans all of history. He spans all the seasons of history. And there are seasons of suffering. There are seasons of persecution. There are seasons of hardship. There are seasons of blessings and prosperity, gospel prosperity and other prosperity, there are different seasons in God's sovereign plans, and yet He is the first and the last. He presides over all of them. And so He wants the Smyrna's to know that, to not to come under and be overwhelmed by the season that they are facing, this season of testing and trial and persecution, and even for some of them, death. That they would know that He is the first and the last. They are to run with endurance, the race marked out for them, fixing their eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of their faith. Realizing that he's there at the beginning, he's over it all, he's going to be there at the end. Seasons will come, seasons will go, but he remains throughout all, and he's Lord of all, unchanging. We need that truth. We need that sense of permanence and stability that Jesus brings. Only He can bring that. He is the first and the last. He is the one who doesn't change. He's ever the same. He presides over it all. We, we need that truth. We we need a sense of permanence in life. There's so much that can come and go. As they say, constant change is here to stay, right? Life is full of change and changing seasons. And some seasons are, are difficult seasons. They're hard. And when those come and go, it, it can it can wear on you and you can have a sense of just instability that you're just cast adrift. Where do I anchor myself in life when things are changing and where there are hardships that come? Oh, for the good old days when things were easy, you, you might say. We, ha- we need a sense of permanence. And, and I think that's why old things in life can appeal to us at times, right? Uh, you know what I'm talking about? That, that we can just kind of enjoy old things, like castles. I, I, love, I love castles, pictures of castles. And there's just something about a castle, you know, it's particularly the ones that are still hab- uh, habitable, you know, people can live in it. Um, you just think, wow, I, I don't know, who here has been in a castle of any sort? Okay, wow. Wow, that's most of us. That's amazing. Um, one thing I love being in the castle is just walking on the steps, like in the turrets and stuff, the towers, and think, like, who else walked on these steps? Some of the old ones, the steps are worn down in the middle when you walk on them. And you just think, wow, what went on? Who else walked in this castle before me? There's just a sense of, like, this is an old thing that's remained through the years. All, you know, different countries, different governments, different seasons have come and gone, and this castle remains. And, and, and we enjoy that. Um, old castles, old trees. I, I, I like old trees, um, in Haverhill, actually, some of the oldest trees are over uh, b- off of mill street. That's one of the older sections, in, in the graveyard that's there, uh, they, the trees there are very old. And there's actually an, an old, old tree that just fell this past winter, called the Worshipping Oak. Uh, that's nearby at, at Buttonwoods Museum. Uh, the Worshipping Oak is a oak tree that dates itself before the Europeans came to Haverhill. Basically, um, it's called the Worshipping Oak because when they f- the First Christians came to the Haverhill area, they didn't have a house uh, to worship in, a church building yet, and so they worshiped under this oak. So think about that, that's like 1640, right? And it had to be a big enough oak to be a landmark at least, if not shelter for them. So it was maybe 100 years old in 1640, it it just finally died uh, and and toppled, so it was at least 400 years old. And there's just something cool about an old oak tree, it just ties us, and I think gives us the sense of permanence and stability. I've had conversations actually related to this of people who, who like old things um, in the church. There are a number of people, and you'll find this conversation going on actually out there, um, who want to return to the old liturgies of the church, the ancient liturgies of the church. And in talking to some of these people, um, there's this appeal of ancient forms of worship and the sense of permanence. You know, If I go back to how the church has worshipped you know, over the years, and and this sense of liturgy, this stability, and I, and I understand that 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 desire, because life can feel so fragmented. Fads come and go, and and sadly, at times in the evangelical church, it's one fad after another, and so you can get tired of it and want I, you know I just want to go someplace where it's always the same, where they do what they've been doing for hundreds of years. By the way, just so you know, I, I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with those liturgi- liturgical forms as long as they're biblically derived and helpful. Um, what I would say is there are some liturgical forms that the whole church has used that go even—they're even more ancient than some aspects. The, the liturgical form of the proclamation of God's word and the sharing in communion; those are ancient forms. The Lord Himself has instructed us in and left with us, and so I trust that you can feel stability in, in those things. But some people are, are, are interested in high liturgy churches. You know, the Evangelical Anglican Church. Even people becoming uh, Greek Orthodox or Roman Catholic because of that sense of need for permanence. But guys, there, there's no permanence in those things, really. They come and go too, perhaps. I'd say the word and communion won't, but these other forms come and go. But Jesus Christ Himself Is the first and the last, the unchanging one. He is our stability. And we, as his people, find our stability in him and nowhere else. That's where we find our sense of permanence. And when we're facing trials, when we're facing the changes of seasons, um, we find our stability in him. That's what he's teaching us here. He is the first and the last. He's saying, Christians in Smyrna, trust in me. I'm in control, I'm the first. I'm the last. This is a passing season of trial you're going to face. But there's, a, there's another side to it. You will get through in me. So hold on. He's the one who died and came to life. He's not only permanent, but he, he is the one who has gone through the worst season you could ever go through. He died. Jesus died. God the Son died. He went through death. He went through suffering. And death, and his suffering and death, the harm that he endured was far greater than anything anyone ever will endure. Actually, it's greater than the sum total of everyone, in that he bore the sins of his people. He bore the sins of his people on the cross. He died. He didn't just die. He died a horrific death. He died a death of such emotional and spiritual darkness we could never understand it. He took on himself. All the filthy, evil, vile sins of all his lost sheep. All the sin. He, he identified himself with that sin. It, it says in Scripture he even became sin. His, he didn't become sinful, but he identified with us and taking our sin. And he knew the horror, he knew the vileness of it all. The whole spectrum of, of it. From the evil and bitterness of gossip and self-righteousness to horrendous things like murder and slavery and adultery and and even worse. All these things, the whole range of things He took on Himself. And He took possession of those things, in a sense, for our sake. And then God in His holiness poured out wrath. His justice, His perfect response to this evil, He poured out on His Son. And so He bore the holy wrath of God. There's nothing scarier in all of creation and all the universe than to be Before the Lord, in your guilt. And that's what Jesus did. He took our guilt. All those who would run to Him and trust in Him, He took your guilt. And He died a horrendous death. He paid for our sins, He died under that burden. There's there's no more horrific death than the death He died. Now, the grave could not hold Him as the Holy Righteous One in His perfect obedience. Atoning for sin, satisfying the wrath of God as God the Son, the God-man. He was raised from the dead, alive forevermore. So he took the worst that anyone could ever take. The most horrendous season you could ever endure, he took himself. He died. He suffered. He was persecuted. He died. He died for our sins and he rose again. He's alive. Behold, he's alive. And so we put our hope in Him. We put our hope in the One who has gone through the grave and has been raised from the dead. He is stronger than death. Jesus is stronger than death. Stronger than our suffering. Stronger than any harm we might face. He went through it. He understands and He overcame it. And in Him we can overcome. He's alive forevermore. This past week, uh, Peg and I got to visit David Fadim in the hospital. David uh, is a member of our church, David and his wife Susan. Uh, On May 11th, Thursday, May 11th, David was driving along the highway, and he suffered a heart attack, uh, went unconscious apparently, drove off the road, did not hit any trees, though there were trees there. Uh, He was immediately attended by a nurse who happened to be behind him in traffic. Uh, He went into cardiac arrest. They had to revive him two times. He basically died twice. And we went in to see him. I I visited him uh, shortly after the accident. He was in a coma uh, at that point, an induced coma on a breathing tube. Uh, And they said he had about a 50-50 chance of living. Uh, Two cardiac arrests, uh, certainly amount of time unconscious. Usually there's brain damage. Um, Usually, even if you live, it's, it's a compromised life. And we as a church prayed for David and Susan. We prayed for strength, and got to work, and God to heal him. I got to visit him, anointed him with oil in accordance with the scripture, and prayed for his healing. And this past Tuesday, Peg and I got to visit David in the hospital, and it was really amazing. I know some, of, some others here have visited as well. It was really amazing to walk into that room and to find David bright-eyed and bushy-tailed there, sitting in his chair, smiling, laughing, interacting like nothing had ever happened. Peg said it was like meeting Lazarus after he had risen from the grave. And that's really what it was like. And it was just a wonderful time. Now, keep on praying for David. He has bypass surgery on Tuesday. um, And he feels weak, but he's very much alive. It's wonderful. I talked with David in that time about life and death and and how uh, from Scripture we learn, Philippians 2 talks about that for a believer, death is gain. To die is gain. It's to be with Christ. And there's nothing better than to be in his presence, to be with God. There's there's no one better, there's no no experience better than to be with God. As Just, you know, the very best of this world is nothing. It's only a, a slight indicator of the goodness of God. So to be in his presence is gain for the believer. But to remain here means to be called to serve, and to serve the purpose of Christ. And there was a particular poignancy talking with David about these things. Because he had just gone through it. And it reminded me of these truths. That in Jesus, we are victorious over even death. Death is turned from an enemy into a friend even. Because it leads us into life forevermore with Christ. And so Christ has provided for us in his life and death. And gives us a hope and a confidence even facing things like a heart attack or whatever else might come. So let me ask you personally in light of the challenges of life, in light of perhaps seasons of suffering and trial in light of those things that really scare you, that cause anxiety in your life where is your solid ground? Where do you stand? What gives you a sense of permanence and stability there may be things that are legitimate things they're good things in and of themselves but they become for you perhaps a replacement for, for christ is it your family your spouse is it your church or denomination even is it the liturgies that we practice is it history or hobbies is it your job is it just simply the habits and rhythms of your daily life where is your solid ground. What do you stand on? This calls us, this section of Scripture calls us to stand on the only solid ground there is. Jesus Christ, the first and the last. The one who died and is alive. Stand on Him alone. Trust in Him because... He's the first and the last. He's victorious, but he also reigns for us in life and death. He is not only victorious in life and death, but he reigns for us in life and death. We see in this passage that Jesus communicates to them that he understands their situation. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty and the slander that you're experiencing. He knows this church. He's fully aware. He's, he's not distant. He's not unaware He's fully aware of their tribulation. He's fully engaged in their situation. He knows about everything. He knows, he knows what they've been through. He knows the trials they've faced. He knows that they're poor, though they are, they are rich in Him. He knows these things. He knows the slander that they're facing. It was hard to be a Christian. It still is hard to be a Christian in many places. Hard to be a Christian at this time in in Asia Minor. Everything was tied in the culture to pagan worship. And it was very difficult to live in that culture as not uh, being pagan worshipers. And there was an exception actually made for Jews. If you were a Jewish believer, Jewish person at that point in time, you were allowed, uh, you didn't have to worship the emperor. You were called to kind of pray for him when you went to the synagogue but you didn't have to uh, worship him. And, and so there was a, an exception, though it was a, an uncomfortable exception to live in that culture, but there was an exception granted. And it looks like in the beginning of Christianity that the Christians were considered Jewish believers. Even if you're a Gentile and you became a Christian, you were considered a sort of convert, uh, at least by the Romans. And so for a while, the church was fairly safe there to not worship the emperor. What happened as time went on, and this looks like, the background to this section of Revelation is the Jewish people who didn't become Christians, many of them did, but the ones that didn't become Christians started to object to the exception being given to Christians, saying they're not Jewish, they're not a sect of Judaism, which te- technically I think we could argue they were, but, or, or are, but, but they said they're not, and so they were no longer given that exception, and now they didn't have permission to not worship the emperor. And if you wanted to live in that society, get along with your neighbor, you needed to worship alongside your neighbor. And if you wanted to go to the market and buy meat even, um, at least going to the temple where the, where the best meat was, you had to go to the temple and it was, worship, it was uh, dedicated to, to gods. And to live in that society, you had to, had to worship the emperor. You had to worship the pagan gods. And so to be a believer meant that you were ostracized. And so for the Smyrnans, they were the Christians were being ostracized. They, their poverty was likely linked to the fact that they couldn't keep a good job because you were be kicked out of the trade unions, that that had at the center. The trade unions would have deities, pagan deities, as their their patron saints of sorts, and so you couldn't be in the trade unions. You couldn't keep a good job. You suffered. You were poor. And Jesus knew all this. You were slandered by your neighbors, and you were slandered by. Those who said they were Jews but were not true Jews. The Jews who had refused Jesus are are not called true Jews here. They are considered of the synagogue of Satan because they're being used by Satan to bring persecution to God's people, Jew and Gentile believers. Yet Jesus knows all this. He knows all about it. They're not alone. He knows all the details. He knows their trial. He knows the source of their trial. He knows that it's not just people. Certainly, it is the Roman government and the Jewish leaders of the synagogues, at least. But he knows behind it, it's the devil himself because he says, Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. He knows the plans. He knows the future. He knows what's going to happen. He knows the source. He knows that the enemy is, is working against them. He's not surprised by the trials they're facing. He's in control of those. He's with them. He himself knows these things. He knows what it is to be poor. He knows what it is to face tribulation. He knows what it is to live under slander. And so he's communicating to them. He knows all this so that they would find comfort in knowing that he knows. That he's in these things. He's in control. He's not surprised. And he identifies. Jesus is one who is both with us and loves us and is powerful and in control he's both those things together he's not merely loving but in impotent right he's not like i love you but i can't do anything about it he can do anything he wants he's in control he has a purpose and he loves them he's with them and that's so helpful to know in trial when you're going through a trial one of the things that the temptations you can face when things are hard you can feel alone. You can feel like nobody knows. Nobody understands what it is to go through what I'm going through. No one else has, has gone through what I have gone through. No one else knows my pain. No one else knows what's going on. And, and you can begin to feel isolated. Even when, when people who are seeking to be compassionate care for you, you can feel like they, they just don't know. They don't really know what it's like. And you can start to feel alone. And then add slander to that. Imagine, imagine a trial where you feel alone. Now add slander to it. You have not only that that others may not understand your trial, but others are now your enemies in the trial saying things about you that aren't true. So you're facing isolation and you're facing accusation at the same time. It can be very difficult. I have not had very serious seasons in my life like this, but I've had some light seasons. I can remember as an engineer there was a time, I think I probably shared this story before, where my competency as an engineer was questioned by a false report, basically that spread... Uh, saying I didn't know what I was doing in this new testing method that I was using and and it was really difficult because people that seemed to be my friends are now questioning my ability as an engineer going getting up and going to work each day felt very lonely and then to think guys that I thought were my friends are spreading rumors behind my back about me it was difficult but it was helpful to know that God knows he knows me he knows all about the situation He's fully aware. He knows what people are saying when I don't know what they're saying. He's fully in control. He's sovereign. He's in charge, and he loves me, and he's for me. So let's trust God. That's what helped me. I'm just going to trust him and continue to do good, and let him take care of the details. In this particular situation, he he worked it out. The testing method that we were using actually demonstrated to be way better. It took days instead of years to test this particular item. And when everyone found that out, all of a sudden everyone wanted to be my friend. And that was nice, but I knew there was something more important, that the Lord is my friend and is your friend. That's what the Christians in Smyrna needed to know. He knows them, and he's in charge of all things. Now, they were facing something much more difficult than mere loss of reputation. They're facing imprisonment and death. It says that the devil will throw them, some of them into prison. They'll be tested for ten days. And that they should be faithful unto death. So the implication here is that that some of them are going to be thrown into prison and some of them are going to die. Now, just about the ten days, uh, remember in Revelation when there are numbers, uh, it usually doesn't mean they're there just to count something. They're there to represent something. So likely the ten days is not literal ten days. It could be, uh, but that's not the point. It's a short season, a, a relatively short season of trial that they're going to face. Probably referring to the trial and testing that Daniel went through because there's parallels between Revelation and the book of Daniel. He, went, he and his friends went through 10 days of testing. That's literal 10 days there from what we can tell. Where they were tested to see if the kosher diet that they were committed to would s- sustain them and make them healthy. They were looking to do that instead of eating the food offered to idols uh, that, that they were being forced to eat. And in their devotion to the Lord, they didn't want to do that. They wanted to remain kosher. So they had a test for 10 days. And and they stood stood in opposition to what the king wanted and were faithful to God for 10 days. So it's probably connected to that. But the point is they're going to face this trial. The church in Smyrna is going to face a short season of trial, maybe literally 10 days, more likely maybe months or so, but a a defined season where they're going to be tested. And the devil is going to throw some of them in prison. Now, don't picture a guy with a pitchfork and a tail grabbing people and putting them in prison. It it's means that the, the devil behind the authorities is working to get them thrown in jail. That's interesting, isn't it? Because didn't I just say that, that Jesus was fully in control? And here we have the devil acting. What's going on here? Who's in control? Both of them? Is it Jesus and the devil? And kind of they vie for who gets to kind of be in charge that day? Is that what Revelation's teaching? No. There's no doubt that Jesus is in control entirely throughout all this. Throughout all of Scripture, this is true. God rules and reigns over all things in Scripture. There's never any teaching called duality. It never puts them alongside each other. God is always over the devil. But the devil is given a degree of reign in this time period. He is In charge of this world this fallen world not this world in its entirety but this fallen world and in particular he he influences and rules over fallen humanity to to work his evil but he does that under God under God's sovereignty and that's important to understand and getting that truth is really key guys to understand that the devil is active but he's under the Lord God is sovereign it's hard to kind of understand think how could this be but but it's presented in Scripture it's it's true so we have to we have to believe it and live in light of it and often though we'll try to kind of put them alongside there's people who will diminish God's sovereignty to, to try to explain how there could be evil in the world but the Bible never does that what the Bible presents actually instead of that is that God is over it in such a wise way that he's able to use even the evil that the devil does to ultimately work good and that good, of allowing the devil to work and have his way, results in a greater good in the end, than if the devil had never been involved. That's the sum up scripture, and even the the why evil exists, a theodicy. That's it right there. God redeems the evil actions of the enemy and of the world to work something even better and that's so important to understand and to see. It. Otherwise this doesn't make sense, right? Why why say this stuff in Revelation 2 in this passage? It doesn't make any sense unless we understand that the devil is under the reign of God and he's working something even better. It's interesting Jesus says this you're going to have this trial. The devil's going to throw some of you in jail. You're going to be tested. In other words, your faith is going to be tested. And the expectation is it's going to be proven legitimate. And there'll be a reward at the end of it. There'll be a glorious result of this this test. There's something better on the other side of the trial. And that's why the trial is necessary. Because it works the better results. Jesus doesn't tell them to flee. He doesn't say, guys, I got some inside information. Um, The devil's going to do some things. So get out of Smyrna. Run away. He doesn't say that. He doesn't keep them from death. He doesn't say, that, you know, there'll be a trial, but I'm going to keep you guys. You'll get, you'll go in jail, but don't worry about it. You all get out. No one's going to die. He doesn't say that. He says, you're going you're to be thrown in jail, and, and you need to be faithful to death, so some of you are going to die. He doesn't say, sorry guys, you know, it's just because of how I made the world, there's free will, and bad things happen to good people, so I, I can't do anything about it. I've got to respect free will here. He doesn't say that. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that sort of thing. He's in control, yet people make decisions, they are responsible for those decisions, that's not to deny that, but He's in control and He's working something better. He's working life, He's working glory in and through His people. He's showing and demonstrating that His life and His people is greater than anything the world would throw at us. That the one who is the first and the last, the one who died and is alive forevermore, is greater than death and is greater than suffering and is greater than harm. And when we hold on to him, even if we barely hold on to him, as he holds on to us, we demonstrate this reality. It doesn't mean we are heroes in it. Because we might struggle and we're going to be weak. I think about if we were to face some of the things that our brothers and sisters in Egypt were to face, I, I, I know I couldn't stand. I would give up. Left to myself, I would deny Christ. I would face those fears and be overwhelmed. But by His grace in me, only by His grace in me, only by His grace in you, there is power to endure, power to be faithful. Power to not deny, but to hold on to Him as He holds on to us. And that power is found as by His grace, by His Spirit in us, as we remember who He is and what He's done. That He is the first and the last. He's the one who died and He's alive forevermore. That's where there's power as we remember and experience that and hold on to Him even as He holds on to us. And He works something greater than our trials through it all but we don't like this do we I don't I don't think we like to go through trials do we I don't know if there's anyone here who likes them I I, we should like what's at the end of the trial but we don't like trials and and yet God works trials God works trials he with the Smyrnans he works them in our lives He, he designs them for good and we're called to trust him I think trusting God is a little bit like trusting a physical therapist. Nothing against physical therapists, but, um, but there are times when I've gone through physical therapy. I don't know if you've gone through physical therapy, had an injury. Um, and physical therapists are kind of like people that hurt us for our good. Um, it, it's if you go through, like I had knee surgeries a while ago, and, and the physical therapist asked me to do things that were, seemed cruel to me my knee uh, after the surgery my knee I uh, couldn't bend it and the physical therapist came in and said you need to bend your knee and said uh, at if I remember right at when I was in the hospital he said if you don't bend your knee you're not going to get out of the hospital now the hospital hospitals are like feel like purgatory in, in some ways, at least to me you're there and you don't sleep normal and people are poking you and waking you and you're uncomfortable and your back hurts and stuff so you want to get out of the hospital if, if you've been in the hospital you know what I'm talking about and then he said if you don't bend your knee you know you can't get out and and so I had to work on bending my knee. It was excruciating to bend my knee. Why would he want me to bend my knee? This hurts. And, and I could only get a little bit. I mean, it was just excruciating to even get that. Um, and, and then I went home. Finally, I was able to bend my knee. And then they came to my house, and they said, you have to bend your knee more now. And they kept on having me bend my knee more and more. And, I would, and it, it hurt. It killed to do it. Um, and they wouldn't give up until I could bend my knee all the way, which I can, can now. Um, And there were times when, you know, I mean, it hurt the whole way through. And I could have been at times like, I hate this physical therapist. And I could have been angry at the physical therapist. Why? They're hurting me all the time. There were probably times when I felt like hitting the physical therapist. It would have made me feel better for a little while at least. But it was good. And it worked healing and something better. I need it works. That's what the Lord's like. He's a spiritual therapist. And He works things in our lives that are good and glorious. And He's there for us. And we're called to trust Him. To trust Him fully. To trust Him even unto death. He is the trustworthy one. He's gone through it all Himself. And He's able to lead us and care for us. So let me ask you, are you trusting Him? Is there something in your life that you feel like is just too bad and big, to trust him for. What is that thing? What is the thing you're afraid of happening? And I would submit to you, he wants you to give that thing to him, to trust him for that thing, whatever it might be, and to know even if it were allowed to happen, he would be enough to get you through it. It might be painful. It might be difficult. But he's faithful. He is able to get you through that thing. So give that thing to him. Whatever comes to mind. Whatever that thing is. Whatever that difficult thing is. Death, sickness, loss of a loved one, situations, harm, disappointment, sorrow, whatever that thing is, give it to him. And trust him who is able to get you through. Finally and and quickly, Jesus We are to trust Jesus who fully rewards our faithfulness in life and death. The reward for being faithful is the crown of life. We receive the crown of life. The the reward and honor that comes from being faithful. We receive a reward. There's glory. There's there's a reward in heaven. There's a precious gift and an experience in heaven that we will have forever as a result of our faithfulness now. It also says we'll not be hurt by the second death. The first death is our is our physical death the second death is judgment day judgment day is gonna come all humanity will be raised and will be have bodies at the final judgment and those who have relied on themselves and not run to Jesus will be judged by God in their in their sin and they'll experience a second death they'll experience an eternal death that's what it's talking about they'll be put apart from the presence of God forever and have a second death but those who trust in christ and are faithful even to death will not be hurt by the second death that's the promise instead we'll have life eternal we'll die physically but we'll know life eternal to to be apart from the bodies to be present with the lord for the believer will be with him and will be in the new creation and it will be glorious revelation continues and talks about what will happen at the end. Revelation 21 says he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. In chapter 22 they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. For the believer you will be with the Lord and know this life. Just think the very best things of this life are, are really only representations, veiled representations of the character and glory of God. Imagine a world so full of God's glory and all its vastness that every moment, every experience of everything is full of an infinity of glory. The veil is taken away. You'll see fully, you'll know fully. And so you will behold the glory of God. There'll be no more evil, no more sin. Only infinite glory every moment and everything you see and that that moment in itself will be so full of glory that you could dwell forever just beholding the goodness and glory of God in that and yet it'll be succeeded by another moment and another moment and another moment all sewn together for eternity full of infinite glory. That's what awaits us. That's what the Lord has. That's His plan. There's nothing better, nothing even close. And we are rewarded for our faithfulness. As we hold on to Jesus. Now, we don't earn that. Jesus earns it. And because we belong to Jesus and have lived in Him and obeyed Him by His grace, we get that. And those who know Jesus will endure to the end. They will listen to the warnings here in Revelation and respond to them. Those are the means of grace that God uses in His people, His chosen people, to work out final and full salvation. And so we're to follow Him. We're to hold on to Him we're to endure as we look to him. If the band could come up as we close. Some years ago, I heard a story from a missionary friend who was in China. He was one of the first uh, Westerners to go into China after the doors opened, reopened. Uh, and he went in there to see how the church was going, how the, how the underground church in China w- was going. Uh, and he went to just meet with leaders and, and help disciple people and had a, told about his experience. But, but one thing he told me about was, was very interesting he met with a believer who wanted to give a gift to the Lord, wanted to give a tithe to really the rest of the church. He wanted to contribute something to bless the church outside of China. And so he told my friend, I want to give this family heirloom to you if I could trust you to take it outside and sell it and give the money for missions or whatever to honor the Lord. Um, And so my friend agreed to do that, but it was illegal to export such things uh, at the time. And so my friend had to smuggle it out through customs. And he went to customs. He was there with another Westerner in customs. They split up. They prayed. They split up and, and just trusted God that somehow they'd get through customs. It was in a suitcase, this item. It was like a family heirloom. And they are in line separately. They had separated before. And all of a sudden, a, a Chinese official came up, tapped him on the shoulder said, come with me. Went over to his friend, tapped the friend on the shoulder, said, come with me. And said, follow me and, and escorted them out of the line and into a a darkened warehouse. My friend at that point is thinking, oh no, the very worst. What's going to happen? I'm going to disappear and they will never find me again. So they followed the guy in a darkened warehouse. They ended up in a long corridor. They kept on following the guy down this corridor. And all of a sudden, the guy was gone. And there was light at the end of the corridor. So they walked out into light, and they found themselves on the other side of customs and safely out of China. Just an amazing story. Uh, He doesn't know who the guy was. He thinks it probably was an angel. He's probably right. But it's a picture of following Jesus. They followed this guy. They didn't know what was going to happen. We know when we follow Jesus, he's going to take care of us. But sometimes we walk down darkened corridors, we don't know what's there, and we might think the worst is awaiting us. But what we do know is Christ is there with us. And Revelation chapter 2 calls us to follow him to trust Him, to give Him our life, to give Him our fears, to give Him our everything, to know He is the one who's victorious over life and death. He's the one who reigns in life and death for us, and He's the one who rewards us. So what fear do you need to give Him today? What thing do you need to give Him? What thing looms large in your life that you can give to Him? As we prepare to take communion shortly, just take some time right now to pray and give that thing to the Lord. To give it over to the Lord, to say, Lord, I trust you. To believe him for that. Just take a minute to do that silently right now before we take communion. ask you to stand as we prepare to take communion. Uh, We're going to sing a worship song, uh, and they're going to distribute the elements.